0: Just sitting around and I pick up an instrument and start playing. The music just comes from I think what I've been experiencing. I learned really early on that the more that you can be creative and the more that you can add to something the more you're gonna get accepted you know, like to play jobs or play with the better players. It brings much more to the table than just being able to look at a piece of paper and play what's on it. The ability to, to, to improvise is, is something that I think most people get over a, you know, a certain amount of time. You know, practicing, getting, getting uh, familiar with the instrument, after years and years of doing it, it becomes second nature and it becomes like what you think comes out of your hands. I find that if I really think about improvising something, then it's not improvisation anymore. I never know what I'm going to play, and sometimes I have an idea how I'm going to start something or what I I want to do with something, but more often than not, it just comes out. It's like musically painting a picture. It's much more satisfying, I think, both not only to the the player, but to the listener. Uh, Be able to just pick up an instrument and just come up with something and start playing. I mean, it just makes you feel like you can say something.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. How you doing? Do you guys know Frankie? He's played up on the stage many, many times. It's been a while, but uh, he's one of those people that I'm jealous of. One of those musicians, so talented. I, I always hoped that I would be like a worship leader type person. I wanted to be in a band, and there's a problem that I have no talent, so I just can't do it. You have to be able to sing and carry a tune. And stuff like that. But it's amazing, you know, these people that can improvise musically. I just watched Ken Burns' long documentary on Netflix all about jazz music. I don't know if you've ever seen this. But to learn how those early musicians... They honed their craft so well that they actually invented a whole new genre of music called jazz. It's fascinating to me. And if you think about it, we improvise in all sorts of different ways in the world. Some of you love food, right? And you love to cook, and you're improvising all the time. In fact, I think Pastor Brad's on a sacred food tour as well. I'm just saying he's improvising over there in Italy a little bit. And that's all good. Some of you guys are teachers and you get, you know, how to improvise with your students. I always had on my report card, Sean is a very nice kid, but he talks a lot and he's got a lot of energy. So my teachers had to improvise, you know. I once saw Michael Jordan improvise his way to 40 points in the Oakland Coliseum. I'm telling you, to watch him switch directions, to react to the defense, and it was against the Warriors, I get it, but they're better than the Lakers this year, Josh Bolin. So I'm just saying, I don't know where he went. But we improvise in all sorts of different ways, don't we? But musically, to improvise, I looked up this little definition this week, it means to play or sing with little preparation, especially by inventing variations on a melody or creating new melodies that are all in tune with a set progression of chords. And so there actually is a set progression of chords. There's chords, there's notes, there's music that every musician needs to know if they're going to play the music. But those musicians that can improvise really well, they're the ones who have practiced so much. They know how music works so well. And over and over again, they become so skilled that they are actually freed up. They're freed up to create they're freed up to invent new songs and new melodies. They're free to improvise. And when they do, the results can be amazing. Well, I don't know if you know this, but walking with Jesus, being a Christ follower, being a Christian, it involves improvising. And there's actually a set progression of chords. There's the essential music of life that we get in the scriptures, the notes that we all need to learn. And as we do, as we learn to live out the story that God has been writing from the very beginning, this story of rescue, this story of redemption as he reaches out to humanity, as we live that out and as we learn to walk in step with the Spirit of God and to listen to him, we actually are freed up. We're freed up to create new and beautiful songs of faith, hope, and love in our world today. We're freed up to invent through our own creativity and our own personalities. We're free to improvise with the Spirit of God. And when we do, the results can be amazing. And so we're going to just do this journey for the next uh, five weekends Through the book of Acts, and we're going to kind of take that whistle stop tour because there's no way we can get to the whole thing. And I know some of you, you're really familiar with the story, you know how it goes. Others of you, it's a little dusty in your mind, or maybe you've never read it at all. And so, what we thought we'd do right from the beginning is we'd get us all on the same page. And so, we found this quirky little silly video called The Book of Acts in Three Minutes. And so, let's all get on the same page and go ahead and watch this video.
2: After being crucified, Jesus comes back to life and hangs out with the apostles. He tells them that they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. Jesus takes off. The disciples are gathered together on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. Tongues of fire hover over them. The disciples speak in tongues. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. God, one. Satan, zero. The end of Acts chapter 2 is written, providing mission statements for churches in the 21st century. Peter heals a lame man and preaches another sermon. Another 2,000 people get saved. Peter and John are thrown in jail. They are released. Peter and John celebrate with the other believers and pray for continued boldness. God rocks the house, literally. Ananias and Sapphira lie about their offering to the church and are struck dead. Contributions skyrocket. The apostles preach again. They are thrown in jail again. An angel releases them. They preach some more. The apostles nominate seven deacons to look after widows and orphans, including Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is stoned. Present at the stoning is a young man named Saul. We'll come back to that later. Persecution breaks out. Believers scatter. Things look bad for the church. Or do they? Wherever the believers go, they preach the word, thus fulfilling the great commission. God, two. Satan, still, zero. Philip meets a eunuch. The eunuch is baptized. Meanwhile, Saul is on his way to persecute believers in Damascus when Jesus appears. Saul is blinded. Saul is healed. Saul repents and begins preaching to the same people he intended to persecute. God, three. Satan, well, you get the idea. Peter has a vision of unclean animals. Peter has an encounter with unclean Gentiles. He gets it. God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. Major game changer. Herod is eaten by worms. Barnabas and Paul start working together, traveling and preaching the word. By the way, I'm going to call Saul Paul now. I don't have time to explain why. Still with me? In Lystra, crowds attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. They refuse to be worshipped and are stoned. The Lystrians are a tough crowd. Paul and Barnabas survive. Paul and Barnabas part ways. Paul and Silas team up. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Paul circumcises Timothy. Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. The party leaves for Macedonia. Spoiler alert, they are thrown in prison yet again. They sing. An earthquake loosens their shackles, but they stick around to lead the jailer to Christ. Yada, yada, yada. More preaching. In Troas, Paul preaches for so long that a man falls asleep and plummets out a window to his death. The man is resurrected. Paul preaches some more. The man wishes he was dead. Paul returns to Jerusalem, where he is promptly arrested again. He is visited by the Lord, who assures him that Paul will testify about him in Rome. Paul feels better. Paul is transferred to Caesarea, where his case is caught up in red tape for two years. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar and is put on a fast ship to Rome the shipwrecks. Paul is bitten by a snake. At last, Paul makes it to Rome. He is placed under house arrest and continues to preach the gospel while awaiting trial. And that is all we know of Paul's story. Somewhere in there, he finds the time to write a few letters. Today, they comprise much of the New Testament. The New Testament is also where you'll find the book of Acts. The end.
1: And there you have it. Three minutes. Man, that's way better than the flannel graph stuff I grew up with in Sunday school. I'll tell you, where was that video when I was a kid? That would have helped me out a little bit. But the book of Acts is long. It's 28 chapters, and today you got a bookmark when you came in. And that bookmark is called The Big Read Through Acts. And we can't get to all the parts of Acts, but what we want to encourage you to do is to read through the whole book throughout this series. And if you start today and you just took one chapter a day, you would finish right at the end of the series. And it's amazing the things that you'll find when you begin to read the whole story, the themes that will come up that you'll notice. And so we want to encourage you to do that, and it's also good to always start at the beginning of a story. And so I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts, if you've never opened the Bible before, it's about three-fourths of the way through uh, the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the seat Bibles around you. Take it home if you need it. we love for you to have that. And so at the very beginning of this story, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so one of the things that we see right away is that the writer of this book has a former book, and we find out through some investigation that this writer is Luke. His name's Luke. He was a physician, a doctor, and he traveled with Paul. He's one of his companions on his missionary journeys. And he actually wrote the book in the Bible, one of the four gospels, called Luke after his own name. And so he's writing to someone named Theophilus, or maybe it was a group of people, we don't really know, probably a person. And Theophilus means lover of God or friend of God. Phileo is the Greek word for the friendship love, the brotherly love. And so he's writing to Jesus' followers to encourage them and to tell this long story. This is sort of part two, the book of Luke was sort of part one in this story that he's writing. And it continues on in verse 3, and it says, After his suffering, talking about Jesus, he presented himself to them, talking about his followers, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. One of the things that you'll read in the Gospels is that Jesus came preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, or sometimes they'll say the kingdom of heaven. And it was a theme. And now Luke, from the beginning of this book, mentions it right away. It must be a pretty important thing if he mentions it right up front. In verse 4, it says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, the word baptized simply means to immerse. They were familiar that this guy, John the Baptist in the Gospels, was dunking people in water. So they knew about that. They'd experienced that. But in a few days, you will be immersed or you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we have tended to think in our day and age that the answer was no. And I think the answer was sort of a yes. I am going to restore, but it's going to be much different than you think. Jesus was just like that. He was sort of always turning things upside down and subverting what they thought. So there was a restoration movement that was going to go on. And then he begins to unfold what they were to do in the very next verse. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were all hanging out at the time, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their, before their very eyes, and a cloud, interestingly enough, Hid them from their sight. Verse 10 They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so this morning, I just want to give us just sort of three observations at the very beginning of this story that Luke is writing. And the first one is this. What Jesus began, his followers continue. What Jesus started, what he inaugurated, his followers are called to continue on, to push the story forward. I believe that one of the huge purposes of the book of Acts, when Luke is writing it, is that his readers, his original readers back in about AD 62, maybe when he wrote this, all the way down to us, is that he would write the story in such a way that we would be compelled to to continue to participate. You see, participation is one of those things that leads to transformation. We want to fulfill the mission of Lakeside to see as many people as possible transformed, right? We want to see people become passionate and productive followers of Jesus. And that doesn't happen without participation. And so Luke, from the very beginning, is wanting his readers to participate in this story that God has called them into, what Jesus began his followers continue. And he shares about this. He shares about how Jesus began this new chapter back in part one. If we were to go back and read part one of the story in the Gospel of Luke, we would see that early on in chapter four, Jesus walks in to the Jewish place of worship called the synagogue. He walks in and they, they give him a scroll. It's the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens up the scroll and he goes very, all the way to the end of it. In our Bible, is Isaiah 61. And he reads this short little passage to them it says that the spirit of the lord is the spirit of the lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and then he rolled up the scroll And it says that every eye in the place was fixed on him. And he looked at them and he said, Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus knew what he was about. He knew his vocation as the Jewish Messiah, the Anointed One, or in Greek, The Christ. He knew that he was the climax of the covenant. This long story that the people had been waiting for. This long fulfillment that they had been reaching forward to. They longed to be set free from their oppressors. And they believed that one day someone would come and they would inaugurate a new time where they would be set free. And they had all sorts of oppressors in their history. At the current time, it was the Romans who were oppressing them. They also longed for the old glory. They wanted to see the glory of God return to Israel. They heard about the old days, about David and Solomon and the glory and how it filled the temple of God. And they wanted to experience that again. God, will you do something new in our day and in our time? And they also wanted to just be set free. They wanted to be free to be the people of God, the people that they were always meant to be, to be a light to the world. They longed for this, and Jesus comes, and he begins to inaugurate the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and he starts a movement that has come all the way down to us. Now, if you were to turn all the way to the very end of the book of Acts, you would see that phrase again, the kingdom of God. In fact, it says that Paul was, in, he was under house arrest for two years, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. With all boldness and without hindrance. Now, there was no punctuation in the original Greek. But I believe if there was, Luke may have ended his book with dot, dot, dot. Because the story continues, right? It continues 2,000 years all the way down to us. And now we carry that story forward. We learn the language of God and the song that he's been singing from the very beginning. And we sing it in our ways, in our time, with our creativity, as we improvise with the Spirit of God to bring the song of faith, hope, and love to the world around us, to our neighbors. The story must continue I have three kids, and uh, they're getting older, I'm getting older, time's passing, and I, I go to sleep at night sometimes, and I think, man, I don't know how many more years I have with my kids. I remember when my 16-year-old, he was a little baby, and he took a big breath in the hospital, and then he started crying for five and a half months. He just cried every single day, all the time. I don't think he came up for air. He would be right in my face crying, and I thought, this is the end of me or the end of you. One of us is going. I don't know what's going on here. But it was hard. The bags under my eyes, I could play jump rope with those things. Those of you that have little ones, man, bless you. It's physically exhausting to have little kids. I'll tell you what. It's more emotionally and mentally exhausting, I think, to have teenagers, right? You know? And, uh, but they're growing. And this is, this is the whole point. We want them to mature. We want them to become adults. And my prayer, not just as a pastor, but as a, as a, as a Jesus follower, my prayer for my kids is that they would know and love God and that they would love people. And really, we're, we're just a bunch of imperfect people. Lakeside is an imperfect church, and we're just trying to show people how to love God and love people. That's what we want to do. And my kids, they have to catch on for themselves. They've got to make that decision for themselves. We don't manipulate our kids into the kingdom of God. We can't control that. But we pray for it, we hope for it, we live it out. And if they catch on to the mission and they start living it out, they will do it in their own creative ways. They will do it with their own gifts, with their own personalities. And it'll be a beautiful thing as we watch them learn the music and learn how to improvise with the Spirit of God in their own life, in their own time, and in their own way. It's a phenomenal thing, and that's what we're about. That's what we see in the book of Acts. We don't go back. We don't become cookie-cutters of the characters in the story back then, but we learn from them, and then we begin to work it out in our own time and in our own way. The story must continue. And so the question for you this morning is, how is the story moving forward in and through you? How is it moving forward in your life, in your family, in your neighborhoods. That's number one. Number two is that dependence is a way of life. The story can't move forward without us depending on God. It's just this rhythm that we have to learn. It's part of the set progression of chords. It's part of the beautiful music that we have to learn how to depend on God. If you were here on our Good Friday service, I talked about how the early disciples at the end of Jesus' life, they were sort of going after those positions of power. They wanted the authority. They were grabbing after it, not much unlike our world today, the political positions of power, the economic positions of power. We even see this on our elementary school playgrounds, don't we? I have a 10-year-old, and he comes home, and he shares about his favorite subject, which is recess. And he goes out, and he plays basketball, and oftentimes... He'll come home and he'll say, Daddy, this happened and that happened and I've recognized a pattern. The pattern is is that the big kids, the ones that are more aggressive, the more bully kids, they get their way and the less aggressive ones lose out. I mean, it's amazing how we see the story of humanity unfolding on elementary school playground. I mean, this is just the way it is. And Jesus tells his disciples that there's a different way. There's actually a different way to be human. He says that greatness is found in living out the sacrificial life of a servant. In our Lakeside Playbook, we call it giving ourselves to others. And so there is a joy, there is life, there is greatness that happens when we model the life of a sacrificial servant. And Jesus goes and he does that ultimately on the cross, And he sets that model for you and for me as he depended on his own father, we depend on him as well. He's taught his disciples that they're not gonna rule with position, but they're gonna lead with meekness. They're not gonna keep the story all for themselves, but they're gonna share it. The world's not gonna come to them and bow down to God, but they're gonna go into all the world and sing the song of redemption. And so he tells them to wait. Luke says that, Jesus says, you guys have to wait. Wait for that promise. This promise that he talked about back in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. There was one who was to come. If Jesus was going to leave, he would send his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be among them. And the Spirit would give them power. The Spirit would give them leadership. The Spirit would give them comfort and encouragement because we know how difficult it is. The Spirit would convict the world of sin. It's a convicting spirit, and some of you, you feel that sometimes, and that's good. You're experiencing the Spirit of God in, their, in your life. There's crazy kind of false guilt where we walk around feeling guilty, and we don't need that, but then there's conviction, and that's the good stuff because that gets us back on the right track as we walk with God. The spirit that would never leave or forsake us. And one of the ways that we see if we read the whole story that they depended on the spirit of God was simply through prayer. And if you were to read through the whole book of Acts and you took a pen, I've done this several times, and you start to underline every time you see the early Christians praying, it just adds up. It starts right at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 14. It says that they all joined constantly in prayer. It was just a rhythm of their life. In 124, it says that they prayed about a new leader joining them. In 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer. In 3.1, Peter and John went to the temple at the time of prayer. In 4.24, they prayed for boldness in the face of persecution. Some of you need that type of prayer. In 6.4, they recommended, or they recommitted themselves to the ministry or the work of prayer. In 6.7, they elected more leaders through prayer. In 759, Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of those who stoned him to death. Lord, don't hold this against them. They do not know what they do. It's phenomenal. In 815, they prayed to confirm that God had included even the Samaritans, these people that they were supposed to hate, God was, in fact, including the whole world, and they were amazed by that. In 9-11, Paul, when he was still Saul, becomes a Jesus follower, and right away we see him praying, and on and on and on. It was part of the rhythm of their life. At least 23 explicit mentions of the early Christians praying in a 28-chapter book. Why would Luke write like that? I think he's trying to show us a pattern of dependence, a pattern of relationship. I had a professor in college that made me go home and read the book of Romans out loud twice in two different translations. I'm a slow reader Listen, I I learned how to read in an experimental reading program in the early 1970s in San Jose at this school where they had this thing called the Hawaiian Reading Program. I learned no phonics. And so it was difficult for me to read. In fact, I read one book all the way through before college. I was in honors English, but I couldn't get through a book. I was so slow. So I would have to listen to a lot of things. I love that I can listen to the Bible on my iPod now. It's great. I also had to go home and read the whole book of Acts in one sitting. It took me four forever, but I did it. And it's amazing the themes that come out when you read large chunks of scripture. And it's good to dive into those little verses and to carry those with you and to memorize those, but it's good to get the whole story as well. And so I want to encourage you to listen to large portions of scripture and you'll see the patterns start to emerge. And one of those patterns that we see is a life of dependence. So the first question was, how is the story moving forward in you and through you? The second is, are you choosing a life of dependence? That's something that we have to choose. It doesn't just happen naturally. We have to choose that. And I know it seems sort of antithetical to us. We're good American Christians. We have that Puritan work ethic. You know, if we just try harder, things are going to get better. Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You know, we'll get it done. You know, I'm going to plug in and God's going to give me in return. And often we realize that that's not reality. That that, that's not how life works. Jesus did say, apart from me, you can do Nothing. And so to abide in Jesus, to remain in him, is the way that we push the story forward. It's the way that we live out and improvise with the Spirit of God. And so prayer is a great place to start. And abiding, dependence, it begins at the foot of the cross. It begins at the foot of the cross, and then it goes on where Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. These days, when I have an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody, when I have an opportunity to share about what Christianity is about, I will often not say, invite Jesus into your heart. I mean, that's good and all that. I think it has some cultural baggage with it and a little bit of theological baggage. What I often say is you have to surrender, You have to surrender every facet of your life to him, and that's a process. There's an initial surrendering that begins at the cross with that trust where you give yourself to the Lord Jesus, and then every day is a renewal of dependence. That's why Paul said that we need to uh, live out our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's just a daily difficult thing to do, but it's about dependence. Dependence is key. That's number two. Here's the final one this morning. And I love this one because I need it so much. The final one is that confidence to love our neighbors is available. I mean, it seems so simple. It seems so like, okay, yeah, duh. But I really believe that we need confidence and conviction if we are going to be the church in this region and really love our neighbors. I need confidence. A couple of weeks ago, Brad said that Jesus was the hope of the world, that he is the hope of the world, and that the church is the delivery system. But for me often the question is, how do I have the confidence and conviction to be a great delivery system for Jesus? I get nervous. I don't always know what to say to people. Sometimes I don't know how to invite them over. I don't know how to talk. And I just need that kind of confidence that keeps me going every single day, that I can be a light in the world around me. I believe that it's fully available for us As we look back at the early Christians, and if you were to read this whole book, if you you do the big read through the book of Acts, you're going to find tremendous things going on. You're going to find disciples doing incredible things. You're going to see them with boldness. You're going to see them praying for boldness. You're going to watch their faithfulness, their relentlessness, and how they lived with a supernatural confidence that was bathed in humility. It's a beautiful thing to read. And I have to ask, how do they do that? How do they do that? Well, in that, this first passage, right in the early part of chapter one, I believe that Luke gives us a hint that their confidence was based on three things. It was based on a past conviction, a present reality, and a future hope. Luke mentions that Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days, gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. They were absolutely convinced that Easter was true. And they celebrated that every single day. They believed that Jesus was alive. And because of that, they had courage to press on in their lives in the mission that God was calling them to. But they also believed that every step of the way, Jesus was with them. I think it's interesting in here, and one of the things that we can miss is, is the whole idea that Jesus ascended into a cloud. And I think his early readers may have picked up on this idea of the cloud motif throughout the scriptures. The cloud that settled on the mountain when the people came out of Egypt. And they entered into this covenant with God. God gave Moses the the law and they entered into this covenant to be God's people. And the cloud descended on the mountain. They would have remembered the cloud that guided them for 40 years every day through the wilderness. They would have remembered that the cloud came down and sat on the tabernacle, that place where it says that Moses used to speak with God As a man speaks to his friend, they would have remembered how the cloud filled the temple, how God's glory was there. But they also would have remembered in Ezekiel chapter 10 that the glory of God departed from the temple. And they longed for that. As I said earlier, they wanted that to return. They prayed for that. They hoped for that. And finally, Jesus comes on the scene. Because once the second temple was built, theologians call it second temple Judaism, the first temple was destroyed and there was a second temple. But there's nothing in second temple Judaism in the literature, either in the scriptures or outside of the scriptures, that talk about the cloud returning or the glory of God returning until Jesus comes on the scene. And it says when Jesus enters Jerusalem that the people said, Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. The glory had returned and that was Jesus. He was the place where people could meet God. And they longed for that and they saw it in Jesus and those early disciples knew that he was with them every step of the way. And not only that, but they had a future hope that he would return and the cloud would still be there. His presence would still be there. He would return on that cloud as well. And so they were able to live in that and they walked in that and that gave them the conviction and the confidence to go out and love their neighbors in Jerusalem and all around the world. And so we can have that same kind of conviction as well. And it does amazing things for us. In fact, we look and in the very next chapter, we see Peter. Peter, the, the, the coward, the one who denied Jesus three times. It says, Jesus looked at him, their eyes met. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. This same Peter stands up and gives the very first sermon of the early church. Thousands of people are listening, and he tells the story of Israel and how Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the anointed one, and they need to turn to him. And at the end of that story, the people say, it says that the people were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' Peter replied, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, "'in the name of Jesus Christ, "'for the forgiveness of your sins.'" And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then Luke writes, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. Some of you today, you're going to meet right up over here. You need to be baptized Let's do it. Come on. We'll get you going. We'll get you oriented. It's an amazing thing. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. There was an explosion of grace that begins to rock the world. And it's been rocking the world for the last 2,000 years. What would it be like if some 2,500 people, it's about the size of Lakeside right now, what would it be like if we learned How to sing the song of scripture in such a way that there was an explosion of grace in Folsom and beyond. It would be remarkable, I think, what we would see God do. About three months ago when I was thinking about this series, I wrote out this little title to this talk, Explosive Grace. And I had no idea that this week there would be a literal explosion that we've all have witnessed now and have seen the story unfold moment by moment, a reminder that our world desperately needs a savior. Our world needs God. It is broken. And then I saw this picture of little Martin Richard on Brad's Facebook. You've all seen the picture by now. It's a reminder that we need a Savior. We need the Prince of Peace. If we are going to have peace, then we need Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And the exciting thing is, is that God has this plan A, and his plan A is the church. And we see that unfolding through the book of Acts and how these people came and allowed God to use them and work through them. And they literally improvise with the Spirit of God as this unfolding story of grace moves forward and we get to participate in that same thing and see transformation happen. And so the question for you this week is, how will you improvise with the Spirit of God? How will you walk with Him to love your neighbors? Would you pray with me this morning? God, you're an amazing God who has this amazing plan that I don't always get. But your desire is to use me. Your desire is to use each and every one of us. You bring us to yourself and you recreate us. You heal us. And in the midst of that, even in our brokenness, you use us to bring hope to the world. So thanks for that. God, thanks for calling us into this work, into this ministry to participate with you. God, we pray that we would learn the song, that more and more we would be experts and we'd be skilled in what it means to sing the song of grace, that we would improvise with you as we move forward in the story. And so thanks for that, God, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you all the glory and praise, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.